This podcast is proudly supported by CareerFacts. The team at CareerFacts is just as passionate about connecting people with the right course as you are. As Australia's number one careers and course search site, CareerFacts attracts over 12 million visitors a year and have partnered with over 50 leading providers. Want to increase your student enrolments? Head to careerfacts.com.au, your partner in student acquisition. From Claire Field and Associates, I'm Claire, and I'm pleased that you could join me for this episode of What Now, What Next? Insights into Australia's tertiary education sector. This is yet another podcast episode with really clever people where I learned a lot and they provided me with a lot of food for thought, some of which I'm still processing and thinking through. And who are these clever people? Well, this week I'm joined by Connor King and Luke Sheen, who are the respective heads of two of the university peak bodies, that's the Innovative Research Universities and the Australian Technology Network. We discuss both current policy issues and reviews of the sector, including, but not just, uh, the AQF review and the review of the higher education provider category standards, as well as university funding and the future of the higher education sector. If some of that sounds a little dry for a podcast episode, let me assure you it definitely wasn't. Have a listen and let me know what you think. So it's my very great pleasure to be joined on this episode of the podcast uh, by Connor King and Luke Shi, two leaders in the university sector, heading up different um, uh, peak bodies. Um, they're going to discuss both what's happening in the sector at the moment and try and do a bit of future forecasting for us on where they think things might be heading. Uh, and I'm going to start by asking you both to, to tell us a little bit about your background in the sector, as well as about your respective uh, peak bodies. And Connor, given you've been doing this gig for a little bit longer uh, than Luke, um, I'll ask you to start off if I might, please. Yes, hi, Claire, and hi, Luke. So I've been in higher education one way or another for 21 years, I realise, when you make me count it up. Um, starting with the then Australian Vice-Chancellor's Committee, and I had a range of policy support roles there. I had one stint in university. I worked at Victoria University for a couple of years. I've been a consultant um, as part of the Phillips KPA group, and then I took up the IRU role at a time when I was not quite sure what the IRU was up to when I took on the role and pretty much did it the way I thought it ought to be, uh, which was to be much more active in contributing to government policy development role, really providing the perspective from my member universities. Uh, before all that, I do have a degree in medieval studies and history, which um, I think is as relevant as anything for these kind of roles, <laughs> and has proved quite useful in a whole range of aspects. Um, one never thought that a particular unit in medieval education history would be so useful. Um, but that's who I, who I am. The, the IIU 
perhaps just to bore if I start my current chair at Murdoch, then Charles Darwin University, James Cook, Griffith, Western Sydney, Latrobe and Flinders are the members of the group. And the history is part relevant to that, set up in the outer part of some of the large cities or in some of our more significant smaller towns and cities, which gives those universities an ongoing commitment to being a well-rounded, full university to provide a breadth of offerings, have very important research in a range of areas to provide a real alternative in the areas they are um, with the connections and expectations you'd have of, of any university. It, it tends to mean in the Australian context that we argue for things that keep the whole sector roughly on the right path. Uh, it's going to work for us, it's going to work for most universities. And the, you know, that's probably, and we use the term inclusive excellence to say we're on about everyone having an opportunity, a chance to come to an IR university and provide an excellent outcome for them and research that deals with issues and questions and how they can help solve important issues for the world around us. Thank you. I hadn't actually appreciated the, um, you know, I'd, I'd grappled with the, the number of um, university peak bodies and I, I hadn't quite ever landed on, uh, perhaps I hadn't done enough homework, on the, the rationale behind the IRU. So that was very interesting. And uh, medieval history and its uh, relevance to the modern Australian tertiary education sector. That could be a whole podcast episode in itself. So if I'm having a quiet week next year, I'll be definitely uh, looking to to pick your brains uh, on that. Um, Luke, uh, your um, background in the sector and a bit about uh, the peak body and universities that you represent. Thanks, Claire, and thanks, Connor. Uh, I am uh, a little bit younger than Connor, but I have also had about 20 years experience in the higher education sector. And um, like Connor, I graduated from um, uh, not particularly relevant field in uh, I did a Bachelor of Music at the Conservatorium at the University of Melbourne and found myself with not particularly a lot of skills for the workforce so went back straight into the University of Melbourne uh, to work as in administration and then a variety of different roles including international and policy advisor and um, so that was nearly 20 years ago but since that time I then acquired a few other degrees which people tend to do when you work in higher education it comes with the territory uh, including law and public policy but I've worked uh, I worked establishing the Texas um, task force in the Department of Education a decade at the University of Melbourne I worked for a former minister for tertiary education in the Gillard government uh, recently worked for the shadow minister uh, and took on the role here at ATN in the middle of this year, sometime after the election. Uh, my, my grouping this is the Australian Technology Network of Universities has been around for 20 years. They celebrated their 20th anniversary last year. Ostensibly was originally five big of the original working men's technical colleges and they uh, were a, a grouping from the 70s onwards but became the ATN uh, and in 1998. One of them, uh, they've all been ostensibly came universities during post the Dawkins reform era, but they are significantly large institutions, mostly based in the capital cities. So QUT left the network last year. So we, I, I describe the ATN as the Fab Four, which is UTS in Sydney, RMIT Melbourne, uh, University of South Australia in Adelaide and Curtin in Perth. 
And what unifies the ATN network is that tradition. So most of them have at least 50 or 60, if not 100 years of training um, originally working class men ostensibly in, in um in areas like engineering um, and technical skills, but have developed into comprehensive universities that still have that um, traditional part of their history and their DNA. So they're highly uh, involved with, with industry, looking at ways in which they can ensure that they address the changing nature of work. And of course, importantly, a commitment to participation and equity because they were originally uh, institutions that served working class people. So there's a very much strong part of the ATN's DNA is equity and participation, which is not dissimilar to the IRU, of course. So they uh, are governed by uh, ensuring that um, people have the skills for the modern workforce, making sure that uh, universities can contribute to uh, the ind industrial base of the nation and ensuring access, equity, and participation. So it's a, it's a, it's a great gang of people um, uh, and a fabulous four to work for. I liked the, the Fab Four. That's a, a very nice characterisation. And I didn't know that you'd done your degree in uh, music. I feel very boring for having done an arts degree majoring in education. So I'm thinking that down the track, when I get Connor back on to talk medieval history, you can do the, you know, the, the background music or something like that uh, for us. Um, so returning to the, from my musings, to the the sector, the current uh, challenges that it faces. Um, the minister spoke at the, the TEXA conference that you uh, facilitated or emceed uh, last week, Luke, and he talked through a number of key reviews, but uh, I think if he had have detailed them all, it you know would have taken most of his speech. So there's a, a lot of work going on in the sector at the moment. Um, you guys are closer to it uh, than I am and than many listeners are. I'm going to ask you both how you read the current landscape and what you think are the things that the sector and government should be uh, focused on. Connor, would you like to give us your views first? The current suite and the Minister's comments about the AQF and the provider categories, uh, it'd be good if he can confirm what I suspect will be his broad endorsement of both the reports. The Provider categories is a much more precise document and one that's much more within his own remit to structure and respond to. Um, the AQF, and the history of the AQF basically is that there's a big review, the thing was created the first time, it's been redone at least once, since, twice. Uh, that takes several years to actually roll out because it potentially affects every qualification in the country. Uh, that's the sort of process I think we're heading towards. The states are, have a role. So it's a slow and steady kind of thing. The, the shape of that report kind of makes some sense to people like me outside. I know that it causes some concern within the universities about if you change some of the things, do they have to rework their qualifications? And I think this gets to an important question of the AQF at a broad principle. It's meant to describe, to some degree prescribe, but the, it's the providers, the universities, and others who actually work out what a qualification ought to be and, and deliver it, and they're the ones trying to change and lead things. So it has to help to understand what's happening, but not get in the way of where things need to go. Now, the, the review has tried to update. Um, I'm not sure it's quite worked out yet how to keep changing, mutating 
um, but we'll see where that one goes. The provider categories, the, the two big things out of that, one is simply to reaffirm the obvious that a university is a place that teaches and researches. Um, and that's pretty much instinctive to Australia, it makes sense. It then creates the opportunity to give greater recognition to the better of the other providers, not describe them by what they're not. Um, as a medieval historian, it's a period defined by not being ancient or modern. Um, the, the other providers need something that gives them a better handle to work with. Uh, and from there, the question is what happens, what opportunities do they get in the future, assuming that category comes into play. So that's the point of interest in the future. Um, and that's a little bit in the minister's hands about where he wants to take that. Um, so I basically would expect both of those reports to be picked up and over the next year or so provide a categories and then slightly longer for the AQF to be rolled out. Thank you. Um, Luke, I'll get your thoughts and then we might discuss some of the other, you know, reviews and recommendations that have recently uh, landed. But but your thoughts particularly on the, the AQF and, and the provider category standards, do you agree with Connor that we're likely to see the government essentially endorse the, the recommendations of those reviews and, and how do you think that will play out? Yeah, I, I agree. I think the government and particularly the minister has been personally quite close to the development of these two uh, reviews, which of course, there has been around 55 reviews into the sector since the election of, of the coalition government. So I uh, kudos to the minister particularly for bringing a lot of this work together and, and making it um, more cogent. So I think what we're going to find is there is an emergence of what the minister has described a number of times now, including at last week's TEXA conference, which is a new architecture for higher education. Um, but, you know, he has the two eminent um, Peters involved in those reviews, Peter Noonan for the AQF and obviously um, Peter Coldrake for the provider category standards. They're both um, significant amount of work. Yes, of course, the provider category standards, I agree with Connor, is a, a more kind of concise and uh, structured uh, um, uh, review. The AQF it has an opportunity to lead to um, provide an opportunity for further reform. But I think what we're going to see from, um, from the government is an endorsement of the broad recommendations. That's probably not going to be particularly surprising. I think they've taken a close view of how it's developed over the last couple of months or last year or so. I, I do think it will inform some future reforms, which I think I've, I've said on the public record a number of times are emerging uh, as part of this new architecture. So it'll be interesting to see whether what that means in terms of the future of work, future of qualifications, micro-credentials, the emergence of new providers in, in the system. I had the uh, privilege of being with uh, the minister in India a fortnight ago for his first um, delegation as Minister for Education. And on that visit, he did talk about the provider category um, uh, review as an opportunity for perhaps uh, new players to emerge in the Australian and international market. So that's going to be something interesting for us to watch. Uh, I think nearly every education minister in the last decade or so has talked about more diversity in the in the higher in the university sector in Australia, particularly. Um, so that's an interesting characteristic which I think will emerge. Of course, um, I don't particularly agree with um, uh, Glyn Davis, who says that there are 30, there's 39 campuses of the one university in Australia. But since Dawkins, we do have a range of um, 
public comprehensive universities that sometimes are similar in nature, but also, you know, given um, our history and our strengths, we are somewhat diverse. Uh, we're not, uh, we don't have teaching only institutions like we used to pre the Dawkins reforms in the um, late 1980s, but it'll be interesting to see how these re reviews inform that kind of work. On, on the AQF, I would be interested to see um, there has been some discussion around a marketplace for um, lifelong learning and micro-credentials, stackable credentials, perhaps underpinned by a skills count or something along those lines. So that could be very exciting. And I think the re the recommendations in it provide for that opportunity to that for that type of reform to emerge. But it's a matter of seeing how courageous the government wants to be. Also, of course, if any of these reforms require significant additional investment from the Commonwealth, that's always going to be a challenge in the current fiscal environment. So we are operating in a, in a constrained environment. The government is more, uh, is, is more interested in ensuring that it delivers a surplus. And um, uh, so, you know, we have to be cautious about what we can see in terms of investment. But those reviews in of, on, of themselves provide interesting aspects to develop this so-called new architecture. Thank you. And uh, funding is, uh, is a, a good observation. I was going to ask you both um, the, you know, new performance measures that will come into play uh, next year. There seems to have been quite good general acceptance of them in the sector. I guess the uh, the underlying, if not always explicitly stated, uh, response has been probably that the the additional growth funding um, is uh, it, you know isn't uh, what is probably needed. Did either of you want to to comment on that, Luke? I might ask you first. Yeah, look, I think well, we are in a in a constrained environment with the uh, uh, the effective freeze on the number of undergraduate places funded by universities, which has been in place since 2018 announced in the 2017 mid-year economic um, statement. And what's coming on in 2020, and of course Connor will be able to elaborate on this as well, is, is uh, further growth in the system, but it is constrained to a certain rate, which is the population growth rate of 18 to 64 year olds in the country. So, so as a condition for that additional um, investment that will flow from the Commonwealth, we have to adhere to performance um, metrics, which have been outlined in the, in the paper um, developed by um, Professor Wellings at the University of Wollongong and his panel, which are eminently sensible and the sector has broadly endorsed. Um, I think they were announced several months ago. Uh, and um, they, because of the nature of the consultation with the sector and the fact that the sector is involved in the development of these performance measures, they are broadly been endorsed. But I would say this, and it reflects one of my vice chancellors saying, if we're planning for uh, ensuring our economy has the skilled workers and the pipeline of workers it needs, a constrained funding system on undergraduates means that there is a constraint on a pipeline in certain areas and disciplines over time. That's probably yet to emerge because universities have done a good job in absorbing the cost and, and absorbing the, the, the funding to allow the pipeline of graduates to continue, but it, it will be a challenge moving forward. The minister's indicated a couple of things. One, he said that he wants to address the, uh, the so-called Costello baby boom. This is uh, when the Howard government in about 2004 encouraged 
one child for mum, one child for dad, and one for the country, that means we're going to have something along the lines of 50,000 additional 18-year-olds uh, into the post-secondary education system in around 2024. So the Minister's acknowledged that that is, is something that it's going to require a funding solution to. Um, but I do, I, I would caution that if we continue on this constrained growth, we will have constrained pipeline of skilled graduates from the economy. Connor, your thoughts? The, the point I would add to that, and I've done a, well, a rough calculation, the, the funding that we talk of as performance funding, well, it has three kind of interlocking, well, not really interlocking, but almost contradictory uses. It's tied to a population growth factor, which implies it is to help the system grow. The population growth factor is one that's too low compared with the real target group. But it also is tied to performance, which in theory is about doing better for those you are educating. So one sense it could be more of the same people. And we don't have anything of an index, which is just simply to maintain the actual value of the money you get. Um, on my calculation, and this is approximate, but once the about mid-2020s, the university would only need to be at around about 90% of its 2017 load to achieve its total, its, its cap maximum grant from the, the grant plus performance money. So the result is that right now the system is encouraging universities to gently shrink, yet we do have a, a demographic bulge coming. So that is Dan Tien's greatest challenge in my mind, is how to, in time, reverse that. Now, the simple solution was the old one of let universities grow where they will. Let's put that aside. The Minister is interested in a whole range of ways where he can um, help universities do some of that growth. He's been quite flexible about how we use our sub-bachelor places. There are ways over the years to come that, in a ministerially determined system, you can meet that and you know, where the growth needs to be. The, the pressure is different from area to area, from state to state, in some instances to others. So if the government wants to maintain the minister in control, then it's just going to need to work on how that person makes those decisions in a way that will meet that demand in time. Um, it's not, and that could be a little bit complicated. I'm glad that Dan Tien's focus is about systemically coherent approaches to that, uh, rather than wanting to do too many deals university by university. Uh, but to some degree, that's the system which he's, he and the government have created, because ultimately the minister will determine and he's going to have to make up his mind on each case as he hears it from various institutions. Oh, that's very interesting. And we've started uh, looking forward. So can you share um, your crystal ball when you're you know, sitting down with your vice-chancellors to talk about where things are heading uh, without giving too much away. What What's the kind of um, advice you're giving them on uh, where you think this this uh, the government and, and the minister are, are going? You've talked about the need for um, a, a coherent uh, funding model and some of the, the tensions in that, that growth funding. Um, there was a little bit of uh, funding for individual institutions around the um, election, uh, as I recall. Uh, what other things do you see when you when you look forward, Connor? Well, going back to our earlier conversation, 
the the VAT system was due so much better than us. Claire certainly showed the weaknesses of just opening up funding on the on a too easy a basis to a whole range of people. Um, that has been useful in constraining the open marketeers of the higher education world. I think Peter Coldrake's that other category, many of those providers will make a case that they could join the funded system. And let's say I'm interested to see whether or not the government thinks that's an option it wants. Um, that might allow it to expand. Um, what rate, etc., would be highly contentious. Um, but perhaps universities do fo face a focus on maintaining what they're doing now and doing it better, but not necessarily um, always looking to grow. Uh, that that's the kind of question we need some kind of guidance from the minister, and we have to be open to you know, what what could emerge. Um, well, but I still remain well. I remain sceptical that universities will be anything other than the dominant provider of the bachelor and the doctor's degree for many decades to come. Um, I think any system will always be based around that. Um, but around the edges and how you meet surges in expectations, that's important. The my main comment, and I. I've talked about the cheap and nasty university is not the thing that you want. Um, it's no good saying that certain people aren't that suited to higher education, so therefore we'll give them a pretty cheap um, education uh, with the expectation that it almost nearly has to not be a very good one. So as you expand and you look at things like pricing, you have to be very thoughtful to what will produce and what we will achieve. Um, and we want to make sure that anyone is who starts a degree gets a good experience and education from it, uh, and the challenges are, are strong there for people from all sorts of background and backgrounds to do that. Very interesting. And Luke, your thoughts when you look ahead? Yeah, I mean, I think it's quite interesting. We have to think a little bit about history as well. So while I absolutely agree with Connor's remarks that the minister's made some very strong indications around systemic or national reform, even though we have seen a little bit of uh, individual university alloc funding allocations in the election campaign, that there is, the, the narrative certainly is systemic, which is, which is, which is um, quite promising. I think also he, 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 like any senior politician, understands history. And one of the things that he's learned is that his predecessors, Christopher Pine and Simon Birmingham, tried a number of times to get big reforms through, through legislation, through the parliament. I think my what I would say is while we'll get systemic national reform, it will be more incremental in nature. It will be... Um, uh, it will be uh, not piecemeal, but certainly we'll have uh, bits of reform stacked on top of each other to lead to this new architecture that the minister talks about. I don't, I don't anticipate seeing a major piece of legislative reform for a new higher education uh, paper, uh, but there may very well be, particularly in the case of tertiary education reform. So we look at the needs of the economy, which is nine out of ten jobs by 2022 will require a post-secondary qualification. When everyone in the sector understands there needs to be revitalisation of the vocational aspect of that, and of course I agree with Connor. I don't anticipate seeing any other providers really being the dominant provider of um, bachelor's degrees other than universities. All right, there may be room for some 
some diversification in that space. What I think really fundamentally is that uh, we're going to pop, there will be a case for some significant reform around tertiary education. It is very interesting though that the government has split the portfolio again. So Skills has gone off to Minister Michaelia Cash in a separate department, so it no longer sits in the Department of Education. So that's been an interesting aspect of our kind of post-election six months that we've been operating in. But I would say if there is a case for big ticket reform, it would be perhaps a white green paper type approach to tertiary education, which of course was you know something the Labor Party and the Xenophon team and, and others have talked about for a while. But I, I would see perhaps particularly driven by COAG and the states as well, some larger reform around um, tertiary education with an emphasis on vocational. But um, that said, you know, ministers don't want to um, put a lot of work, mental energy in uh, on reform processes to have them knocked back in the Senate. So it'll be, as again, I, I, I keep reminding Vice-Chancellors and ATN universities and others in the sector that it, it, it's still a monitoring phase of how all these component parts fit together. And I've, you know, I've, I've thought about it, you know, we've had freedom of, um, of academic freedom and freedom of speech, provider category standards, foreign interference task force, the review of the AQF, performance funding, the review of the Melbourne Declaration, the Shear Gold um, pathways and the regional remote and um, a review of uh, higher education. There's a lot of work there. What that looks like in terms of reform, I think it will be built together in separate pieces. And then, of course, we've got the Joyce Review and other things in vocational. So it is quite a big body of work in order to inform the reform process, but I don't anticipate seeing it in one legislative reform piece. I think see it in a a number of different measures over the course of time. And we've seen that already. The adoption of the performance um, funding ostensibly for 2020 onwards. We'll see what the provider category standards review leads to. And we'll certainly very excited about what the AQF review recommendations might lead to as well. Um, thank you both. You've given me uh, much more optimism than I probably had before I started this call. So I've been looking at all these reviews that have been going on and had seen them as being quite fragmented. And I guess what you've shared are your thoughts that this is much more about um, an integrated set of reforms, albeit that they are uh, incremental in terms of, of how they're coming together. So you've certainly both given me um, a great deal of food for thought and uh, and no doubt um, other listeners to to the podcast so thank you both very much uh, for joining me um, for this episode and with that we're almost at the end of another episode. As always, I very much welcome your ideas and thoughts. Where do you think the higher education sector is headed and where should it be heading? Do get in touch. You'll find me on Twitter at Seafield and Associates. I'm on LinkedIn and you can also find Clearfield and Associates on Facebook. Lastly, don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. It does help people find the show and it also tells me what you want more of, 
Uh, if you subscribe to the show in your podcast feed, it will automatically load the next episode as soon as I've got it available for you. Thank you again for joining me for this episode of What Now, What Next? Insights into Australia's tertiary education sector.